You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC, and now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Uh, ask for more signing bonus, relocation, um, you know, if, if you want to change things in the contract. Because like, I feel like that's a big thing. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. I should have what's reasonable. I don't want to seem like a jerk. Welcome to Financial Clarity for Doctors. I'm Corey Janoff, joined as always by Rochelle Vanderzanden. Hello. And today we have a special guest, the one and only Braden Balakan. He's one of our financial advisors here and our internal contract review specialist. We send a lot of our physician uh, clients to him to get their contracts reviewed when they're looking at new employment opportunities. And he does a great and thorough job. Um, and today we wanted to, to dive into that topic as, as a lot of folks coming up to the end of the academic year are, are looking at new job opportunities and kind of wanted to talk about things that Braden looks for when he's taking a look at contracts so you guys can be uh, well-versed on your end as well for what to look for when you're reading through your own contracts. Now, full disclosure, we're not attorneys, so we can't give you legal advice. It's, it's always prudent to have an attorney review things from a legal perspective, but there are plenty of nuances within a contract that, that aren't really from a legal standpoint that are still uh, beneficial to be aware of. So welcome, Braden. Yeah, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on the show, Braden. You'll have to mm-hmm. listen to afterwards <laughs> <laughs> definitely we did want to get just a little bit of an overview from you before we start jumping into specific questions on like what your process is when you look at employment contracts so do you have anything that you do just automatically like here's my process mm-hmm. yeah I mean it's simple it's a lot of reading and, and typing at you know, but uh, I guess you know major areas that we look for non-competes term of agreement uh, non-solicitation gu- guideline compensation is it you know comparable for you know regional data as well as other physicians in your specialty uh, signing bonuses relocation you know eyes gravitate to pretty much the big ticket items that a lot of people want to know information on but a lot of contract review is working towards the, the the little information right doubles in the details in a lot of cases and that's what we want to put primarily a lot of our attention yeah uh, and Go ahead, Rochelle. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, it's crazy. I've seen lots and lots of contracts at this point, and it's crazy how different they can be. Like, they can be, like, we do a two-page offer letter, and that's all that you get. Or we offer, like, a 40-page contract. And I, it's kind of astounding, like, how those big differences happen. Like, can you explain some of the different types of contract documents that people can expect to see? Or, like, what's normal? Or is there yeah, normal? Yeah, I, I, I'd say most contracts are, are hopefully somewhere in the middle, uh, somewhat for the client's sake and more so for mine at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, larger than two pages, less than 40 uh, would kind of be the ideal situation. And so the, the offer letter that you guys get on the front end, um, it's cool. It's the, the eye-catching items, right? It's all of the, the compensation numbers. When do I start? Uh, what's the signing bonus, the relocation, and maybe some information on benefits, but it's really things. It's a pamphlet. 
right? To draw you in, it's the big intake and information that you want to hear uh, for, to get you to sign up for that specific job. But again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the devil's in the details. And that's kind of where, you know, even if you get an offer letter, you probably want to reach out to your employer and ask them, you know, is a formal agreement coming up down the road, right? Is it, you know, after I sign the offer letter, is it during orientation? Um, you obviously want to give yourself some time, though, to read through a formal contract that does have more of those details, right? Not practice insurance, uh, non-competes, non-solicitations, um, and goes into you know, more information than just what is provided, but what's kind of the, the disclosures for receiving those additional incomes and signing bonuses and relocations that, again, you know, really shape out what the job that you're accepting looks like at the end of the day. Um, and that's kind of where that longer piece of information comes from with that formal contractual agreement um, where we can read through some of those details um, and really figure out and pinpoint those nuances that, you know, you know what you're signing up for in the situation. So somewhere in the middle, typically you get an offer letter up front. And again, hopefully on the back end, they'll follow up with a, a longer formal contract. So within those details, you know, obviously every it's important to read through the entire contract and know what you're signing up for. But is there anything you know, in particular or several things that really people should be focusing on? These are the main things that you want to be aware of within a contract? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, you know, again, it'd be more the eye-catching items, again, that, that people are looking for, that, that people are going to spend the most of their, their, their attention span towards. And so, again, the non-competes are a big one, at least for me and I think most clients out there. Now, there's a lot of, you know, of our clients that ask that I don't want a non-compete. But, again, it's a little outrageous to request that one. Um, most people will be thrown into one because put yourself in the shoes of the business owner, right? It's, it's their form of protection, right, from you working Can for you another competitor. Can you quick explain what a non-compete is for those that are unfamiliar? Yeah, so non-compete is basically a, it's comprised of two parts. Right, the geographical restriction and a duration restriction uh, from you being able to work within the city limits or you know specific area. So call it a 50-mile restriction for two years. Um, it can be based off of one location. It can be based off of multiple locations that you've been working for under that given employer, but it really would push you out in that situation, maybe uh, the metropolitan area, maybe city limits and push you into different counties that you'd have to work in if you were to terminate your agreement or if you were terminated, right, by your employer in that situation. So it's a big thing for people to take into account, especially you coming out of training, because what all of our physician clients want to do when they jump out of training, they want to buy a house. Right? We want to set down the roots, and when we do those things and the job doesn't work out, potentially we're selling that house at a loss or you're taking a long commute to find that new job, at least for a small period of time. And so non-competes are very important to know about and incorporate into our understanding as financial advisors for helping you, the client, shape your overall financial plan moving forward and make the right decision. And so, again, a lot of time is spent there. And, you know, I do use Google Maps when I look at, you know, contracts and try to figure out, hey, you know, where's the exclusion area, right? Where's that nearest practice you can work for that's outside of that geographical restriction? Um, And there are, you know, in certain situations where, Non-competes could be overly restrictive, right? It does have to pass what's called the janitor rule at the end of the day. Um, you know, it can't be you as a physician are unable to work for any medical institution for two years, right? That's, that's overly restrictive at the end of the day. And so the janitor rule says that you have to be in a position where you are able to work at least as a janitor, you know, for, for some type of institution. 
right? So that's the overly restrictive part. It's fairly broad. Um, but again, you know, there's still legal guidelines that can be followed and the geographical restriction will change, right? Depending on where you're working. And so if you're the only anesthesiologist in a 300 mile radius in the middle of Montana, guess what? Your non-compete's going to be 300 miles, right? You, they, that, that, that practice doesn't want you working for the next available, um, you know, employer nearby that draws away business or for you to set up shop, right? After employment as well. And so again, it's their protection. If you work in New York City, your geographical restriction might only be a mile or two in a lot of situations. Everything is so condensed, right? In order for it to be not as restrictive and fall under state or federal guidelines, you know, typically we'll, we'll see those instances. So again, understand where you're living, what the current working situation looks like, and that'll kind of give us a basis for what's reasonable and what's not. But non-competes are big. And you brought up a, a big point there where you mentioned it could be that your primary location or multiple locations. Like if you work for a hospital system that has a dozen locations throughout the entire state and you, and it, you know, there's a 20 mile non-compete around each of those locations that could boot you out of the entire state potentially. Yeah, that is a, the thing that you have to look out for. And there's some contracts that state that, you know, every location that we own, you're restricted from it within, you know, that, that state model. Um, but in a lot of cases, you'll, that's where we'll want to have a special language for limiting, you know, which locations that we're targeted to. And in a lot of cases, we try to get it to, you know, maybe the, the practice that you've spent the most time at or 60% of your practice at over the last 12 months, right? And so it targets one or two locations in that situation. Granted, you know, it still probably push you out, you know, from most available employers in the area, but, you know, again, limiting some of that damage if there is someone else that falls outside of your geographical restriction. And there are ways to get out of non-competes, right? Some employers do provide you with the ability to buy out of your non-compete clause. Um, typically, it'll cost you though 12, the last 12 months of income, right, that you generated with that employer. So not really as lucrative unless you're getting a job that pays you twice as much, right, than you were working previously. And so, again, few and far between where those situations make sense. I feel like a lot of times we see little extra incentives built into contracts like sign-on bonuses or even like loans for housing and some of the places where housing is really expensive. But I do feel like there's almost always a catch. Like if mm -hmm. you don't do this, you have to give it back plus interest or, or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about what specifically you look for there? Yeah. And so that's where, you know, understanding the full contract really plays you know, into a role there. And so when we're looking at signing bonuses, relocation, student loan forgiveness programs or other loan type situations from your employer, you know, it's great that they're giving you money. Understand it's not so much goodwill. It's more of a, a business transaction, right? It's a, you're going to fulfill your term of employment or, you know, we're expecting certain things from you. And if you're unable to fulfill those, you know, given agreement or situations, we're going to expect that money back. And so a lot of times um, it's not disclosed in contracts or, we kind of breeze over it, you know, just sign the contract and get it over with because we want that, you know, quote unquote free money or upfront cash in the form of signing bonus. But um, yeah, they, they do come with some disclosures, some clauses, right? And so, if we, for example, if you sign up for a three-year term agreement, typically your signing bonus will say that your signing bonus is forgiven and prorated for years of service, right? So 33% is forgiven for each year that you complete a term of your agreement in that situation. If you do not complete that term, 
the money needs to be repaid back to your employer within 30 days, and there may or may not be interest tied to that in that situation. So again, something to be prepared for and something, you know, run into in the past with other clients where, you know, we know up front that, hey, this is a a short stint job. It's a one-year thing. We're going to move on to something else, but it's a four-year term. And there's a giant signing bonus, you know, $70,000 looks attractive, but if you have to repay back that money at the end of it, you know, maybe not something that you take in that situation, knowing that we have to pay it back. There's interest tied to it. We may have the possibility to, to use those dollars for, you know, more opportunistic opportunity that comes up, but few and far between that'll outpace insure, the interest rate that you'll generate um, or the risk associated with that situation. So understanding kind of those concepts and how do we repay those things over time. I think the craziest one I've seen was like a, it was a three-year agreement. They were given $120,000 of loan forgiveness, but it's repaid with seven years of service at the NA. So the, the repayment is longer than the term of the agreement. And so there was no promises, you know, in that situation, um, you know, being able to forgive it with, you know, service over time. And so something like that to, to really move slowly with. I've seen that too. Like here's a hundred thousand dollars. It's forgiven in years five, six, and seven, you know, like, mm-hmm. it, yeah. Yeah. One area that I'll often see a lot of questions on is just the specifications around the overall job expectations and, and more specifically, like what, types of procedures you're expected to do, the number of shifts you're expected to do, the call coverage, you know, number of locations you have to cover. Like all of some clients that they've signed on, they think they're going to be working at one location, but then they're expected to drive all over town and cover all the other locations. And it's, you know, they spend half their time in the car commuting and they hate it. So what are some Mm -hmm. things to be like, what do you look for on that uh, when it comes to those topics? Uh, a lot of that falls on the client, Anthony, right? If, if it's me reading a contract um, and saying they're going to pay you money for doing X, Y, Z, I'm all about it. You, know, you go do those things, client, because I'm okay with you doing those procedures or those duties, but that's where the client comes into play. You know, Are you comfortable right, doing X, Y, Z things? Maybe you don't want to teach. Maybe you don't want to do research right? in that situation. Probably don't work in academic work if that's the, the situation, but um, you know, that's where you come in clients and you you tell me what you're looking for um, or definitely have a conversation with your employer to make sure that some of those things aren't there. Understand that you might be in a situation where you, you need a compromise at the end of the day um, to, to get what you want and some things that the employer wants to find a middle ground. Um, you might not get everything, but definitely where you have to do a little bit of the light work in that situation because personally, I don't know right what you guys want specifically on that duty side as far as the, the work and it entails at the end of the day. Call schedule is also tough. You know, most contracts that we review are very vague. It's like a two-liner. You will be held to a call schedule. You will have a similar schedule to all other employees. You know, what does that mean? Um, how often do I have to stay up night after night? Or, you know, the hierarchy, you know, how does it work? And so that's, a you know, definitely something you want to get from the lion's mouth and talk to your hiring manager, talk to uh, the department head or whoever you're in contact with to get a good idea of what that call schedule will be like and are you okay with it in that situation. Um, most of the time, it'll be fine, but you know, definitely something that they don't disclose all that greatly within your formal contract. They're just going to state that a call schedule is there um, at the end of the day. And as far as locations are concerned, um, yeah, that's a big one. You know, definitely want to try and narrow down where you practice 
Um, but typically they'll, they'll leave it relatively vague in most cases where they'll leave it open to, hey, you may potentially be needed at specific practices and we'll ask you to commute in those situations. But um, a lot of that, maybe, you know, if you ask and you're diehard, I only want to work in this specific area or this specific region, you know, definitely area concerns, right? When you have those conversations with your employer or your hiring manager, definitely the time to be asking for those things at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, you want that job that you want and you want to have that lifestyle you want to live, bring up those situations with them. You know, those are some things that I personally can't do or I just don't know intuitively um, unless you're like a, one of my clients that I meet with like on a monthly basis and we're, we're basically family. So, you know, few and far between where that's the situation. Yeah. And I feel like there's, well, most employers at least offer a certain amount of benefits. And one of the big ones for medical professionals is malpractice coverage. Like that's something that you need to have. Is there anything in particular that you look for in contracts when you're looking at what that malpractice is and what it covers? Yeah, I mean, the big one would just be, is it provided at the near? What's the obligation on the, the uh, employee's part right, or the client's part on that end? And so is it claims-based coverage? Is it occurrence-based coverage? Um, does your employer pay for it? Do you have to get it out of pocket? Um, how much you know, protection is being provided? And so that's a big one to look at, too, where you know, if you're an internist, right, a million per an occurrence, three million in aggregate, uh, aggregate sounds fantastic. Right, it's probably more than enough coverage than you need. If you're a neurosurgeon, a million, three million of coverage, it seems a little bit slim given that you're dealing with people's brains. And so maybe an area that you want to go back to them and ask for a little bit more coverage or figure out if it's okay for you to go secure a secondary policy. And in that situation where you know you are provided claims-based coverage and maybe your employer's not gonna provide tail coverage for you when you do take off and leave or if you are terminated, um, you know, ask them for uh, a short list of approved vendors. And so not every single employer out there, but a lot of them, they're picky, right, about who you actually get your coverage through. Some will let you, you know, go into the wind and find one that, that's right for you, that's cost competitive. Others are going to have a short list of 10 vendors that they need you to get coverage from um, within a 30-day time span of, of taking off and leaving, right? And so definitely some more questions to ask there and, you know, definitely go a little bit deeper on, on what type of coverage is provided what's my obligation and out-of-pocket cost going to look like. Yeah, can you talk about tail coverage a little bit more, what it is, why it's important? Yeah, and so claims-based coverage, or I guess malpractice insurance, right, two types, claims-based, occurrence-based. Claims-based coverage protects you while you're working for your employer, that's it. Occurrence-based coverage protects you while you're working for them and after you leave. And so under claims-based coverage, in the event of a termination of your agreement, um, you're wide open. Right, for someone to sue you directly from a malpractice claim and take your personal assets in the same way as a car accident or some other incident. And so that's where tail coverage comes into play where it's basically malpractice insurance for the statute of limitations in the given state that you're working in. Um, and so tail coverage, again, it, it could be fairly expensive, uh, thousands of dollars, you know, especially if you're in a higher surgical specialty or depending on how long you've been working for that given employer, and so definitely something to factor in, you know, into a cost perspective or at least emergency reserves to make sure that it doesn't act as a barrier to exit for you in the event that you do want to take off from that employer, right? If it's going to cost you $20,000 because you have to pay for it um, in lump sum at the time of securing the coverage and we don't have that money, 
you may find yourself in a position where you may have to stick around with that employer, take a personal loan that's going to cost us a lot of interest um, and, and just an uncomfortable position to find ourselves in. And I do feel like a lot of employers offer to cover, cover that, like if you satisfy the terms of your contract, but it's just definitely something to pay extra attention to when you're reviewing that contract and making sure that it is very clear in there who's responsible mm -hmm. for it. Yeah. Right. Uh, some are clear cut, you know, regardless of how you're terminated, whether you leave us or we terminate you, you're responsible for it. Boom and done. Um, there's others that go into the more situations right, where um, if you terminate your agreement for cause, right, so the employer was in the wrong, they'll pay for the coverage for you. If you are released from uh, your employment for cause, right, you I don't know, committed a criminal act, a felony, you punched another employee, right? They're, they're terminating your agreement, right? In that situation, sure, right? They'll make you pay for the tail coverage. If you satisfy the term of your agreement and we, we settle things on an amicable fashion, the employer picks up the coverage. Um, or if you leave us without cause with 60 or 90, 180 day waiting notice, whatever they, you know, ask for in that situation, um, you're responsible for picking up the coverage. So, there's a lot of different ways to structure them, uh, depending on you know what your needs are, what you're looking for. We can definitely ask for some of those things if you have a, a preference as a client. Yeah. yeah, I found that can be one area that can be sometimes negotiable more than other areas. If uh, mm -hmm. your employer wants you to pick up tail, you could potentially work that into the agreement. If you stay there a certain number of years, they'll pay for it instead of you. Mm -hmm. um, other, one topic I, I see with a lot of folks is the ability to earn income outside of their hospital or their practice, whether it be through moonlighting or just from other avenues. Um, what do you look for from that standpoint in a contract? Yeah, and so typically there will be like a clause that asks for like out, or, or states of outside activities at the end of the day. And in a lot of cases, especially on the private practice side, you know, they'll allow you to do you know, speaking engagements or uh, outside research things, anything that doesn't affect your ability to, you know, perform at 100% at work. Um, the one thing that you probably can't do is, you know, perform medicine, you know, for some type of profit outside of your employer. Um, but for anything that, you know, most people do, and most of the clauses are, are fairly general at the end of the day, right? Here's what's covered. Here's what's not. Um, biggest thing to do in any situation where you're anticipating trying to generate additional income is definitely reach out to your employer and, and ask for permission, right? Never hurts to make sure that you get it from someone with direct authority to tell you yes or no, um, can I go and perform these things? Other employers, you know, might set limitations to income that you can generate outside of, you know, the, uh, outside of the hospital, 25,000, 50,000, beyond that amount, you know, we may step in and, you know, ask for a prorated cut or something of that situation. So, many different ways to structure it. As far as moonlighting is concerned, typically that's not really stated in the contract, uh, but those would come up with more academic positions. And, you know, it's just something you'd probably find around your department or your department head asks you, uh, do you want to pick up extra shifts and, you know, go for it. Same thing like to residency and fellowship. Yeah. Um, I think one other thing that we sometimes see physicians doing, at least now, um, is maybe developing some sort of extracurricular activities that like can maybe generate income or generate um, like extra, I, I don't know, like 
like developing their persona online or you know building a blog out and things like that have you ever seen hospitals or employers be concerned about those kinds of activities specifically um not on a personal level unfortunately yeah. i know I've, I've had a couple of clients bring that up in the past like personal clients um they mm -hmm. wanted to be like dr mike on youtube um, and, you know, have his own channel and, and talk about medicine, like look over, you know, house MD videos and things like that. And he's like, how does that affect me? And I'm like, I have no idea. Go ask your employer. That's <laughs> any day. I think in that situation, I, I think you're okay as long as you don't use the branding of the hospital, right, in that situation. Because then now you're tying their brand to yours. And I'm pretty sure from a legal perspective, they're, they're not going to be too happy about that. But yeah, I guess I, I'm unsure. You know how that the new age of uh, you know, social media uh, and income generation from those facts. If you end up getting millions of followers, like Dr. Mike, um, how that affects you know your contractual agreement or intellectual property or um, obviously those situations of outside activities at the end of the day. But I assume you'd be okay. Um, just don't state where you're working and who your em employer is. So negotiating contracts, the fun part or the feared part, depending on who you are. But um, mm -hmm. I guess what types of employers are most likely to be open to negotiation and maybe what points in the contract are usually the most commonly negotiated? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'd say private practice physicians would probably be the most malleable you know, to, to working with you as far as changing the contract terms and you know income and things of that nature if you work academic it's, it's pretty much a, a set thing at the end there's some things that maybe they'll work with you on um but not a whole lot and it's mostly going to be on the the income side um with um you know, working with academic positions and it's not like i guess the, the only a few situations i've run into where they're, they're willing to work with you is on the academic side is increasing signing bonuses ever so slightly will give you a bit more relocation bonuses and few and far between where I've seen them be able to find you more of a base income. And the only way I've seen them do that is by giving you a title, right? And so this guy uh, got a, was a radiologist in the middle of Nebraska and they're like, they really, really wanted him. And so he wanted more money and they ended up giving him a directorship title, but with no obligation of duties in that situation. But it was the only way under the hospital terms that they could get him more cash, right, in that mm -hmm. situation. So that's one of the ways they could wiggle around and help you, depending, right, again, it, it's kind of towing that line. What does the board allow them to do? But in the academic setting, they have budget, right, that they work off. And this is how much you as an entering physician can earn, so on and so forth. And so there's set guidelines for them as far as what can be provided. So, again, it, it, there's little wiggle room in those situations for additional you know, asking and, and agreements. But private practice, you know, definitely more malleable. Um, you know, ask for more money, ask for less money. Don't know why you would do that. Uh, ask for more signing bonus, relocation. Um, you know, if you want to change things in the contract, again, those smaller types of practices with fewer employees tend to have, you know, less generic uh, contracts and, again, willing to work with you to bring you in um, at the end of the day. And so those are the situations that, you know, probably have a better chance of you asking for what you want. How do you help people decide like how much is appropriate to ask for? Like, cause I feel like that's a big thing. Like, I feel like mm -hmm. I should ask what's reasonable. I don't want to seem like a jerk in this situation, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's definitely an area where, you know, contact me and let's talk about it. Um, you definitely want to be reasonable uh, going into negotiations. And so employers saying, hey, we'll give you a $200,000 base, and you walk in saying you want a million, I'm pretty sure that they'll tear up that contract right in front of you. And so that's where kind of we step in and we have access to MGMA data as well as other sources that we can help, you know, say, hey, you know, you are being underpaid at the you know, regionally or uh, on a national average, you know, you, we can go to bat here. Here's some data, talk to your employer. Maybe they'll raise it up a little bit to someplace where, you know, again, both parties are a little bit more comfortable in that situation. You know, the big one, again, like we talked about earlier, that I think a, a lot of people you know, have a, a rosy idea about is non-competes. Um, again, don't walk in there saying, I don't want to non-compete. No one does at the end of the day. But again, if you step, put yourself in the employer's shoes, you know, you'd ask an employee to have a non-compete. So can't have it both ways. Can't eat your cake and eat it too. Um, and so, you know, that's definitely where we can maybe shrink geographical re uh, restrictions. We could shrink durations, uh, depending on how much your employer is willing to work with you in those situations. But yeah, definitely, you know, ask some reasonable things at the end. Of the day. And on the income side, if they're not willing to, you know, budge as far as base income, a lot of times what I see employers do is add rings around it for production. Right. Because they'll um, say, we'll pay you 30 percent of um, net collections above 300,000 for the year or and then they'll add another ring around it. Forty percent, you know, once you collect over half a million right, of net collections. And so it, from an employer standpoint, from an employee standpoint, I think that's a great way to incentivize both parties. Right. We'll pay you more if you bring in more business. Everybody wins in that situation. So it's a nice way to increase your income and have an employee that, you know, works fairly hard to make sure that they can live that specific lifestyle as well. And so not leaning on other physicians or other dentists or, you know, whatever it is to, to create your income. I actually had a client very recently negotiate a, a job for their spouse. <laughs> like the, the employer really, really needed someone with their specialty, not so much with their spouse's specialty, but they were like, if you want me to come here, you need to give them a job too, like period. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I guess that's a big one too, you know, understanding your position at Canadian, right? Yeah. And so if you have a lot of power, you can direct the conversation. You can direct and, and get some of your needs and your wants. Um, but again, coming out of training though, again, you, you may not have that, that power push. Uh, right. Because, it's kind of, you know, gets back to economics 101, supply and demand. It's going to be a lot harder to negotiate a contract in a major city where a lot of other doctors live. Like if you're a hospitalist in New York City, you probably don't have a lot of leverage in negotiating room. But if you're, a, mm -hmm. you know, spinal surgeon in, you know, Iowa in a small rural town and you're the only one in a 500 mile radius, you've, you've got a lot of, of, of leverage and, and asking power for, for that because it's tough to, uh, you know, lure folks of your capabilities to that location. Mm -hmm. So something to be aware of too. You know, if you're the big fish yeah. in a small pond, you got more power. But if you're a small fish in a big pond, it's going to be a little bit tougher to get what you want. Yeah. yeah. You want more money? Live rural. Mm -hmm. Geographic arbitrage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two years, and then you, you can go find somewhere else after that. Absolutely. Do you have any horror stories, Brayden? What are some pitfalls that you've seen people fall into? 
No names. Yeah, thankfully. Yeah, no names. I don't think I've seen like horror stories. Um, okay. You know, maybe a, a handful of painful clients just repeating the, the same thing. I don't want to non compete. I'm like, all right, I get that. Unreasonable. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think any client so far has, you know, had a horror story or you know, completely tanked on a contract or anything like that. I think the, the worst situation was is maybe we went through, you know, a couple of employers just because both parties weren't willing to compromise was the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. And so again, employers aren't budging on, on, you know, income and, you know, other facets of the, the agreement that they wanted, uh, or the employee wanted and the employee wasn't willing to play ball. So. Uh, eventually, and if you're, you know, that person, cool, you know, stick to your goals and your ambitions, but understand that we may be doing a lot more job searching than you're anticipating in that situation of find that perfect spot or, you know, something that, that fits your need. What about you, Corey? Have you ever had any situations where people got caught with tail coverage unawares or had to move? Um, I've run into a few, none that none specific that I can really think of off the top of my head. I think it, um, where we, where I see the most, uh, I guess issues arise is where, uh, maybe things aren't necessarily spelled out specifically in the contract and the physician is led to believe one thing and it doesn't turn out to be true. You know, like it was a handshake agreement. Oh, the director promised me, you know, I'd get, you know, a pay raise this year, a pay raise that year. And, you know, after three years, I'd be making 500,000, but I'm only at 300,000 right now, you know, that sort of thing. Um, or, you know, where they where they didn't think they would have to be working nights or weekends or this many nights or weekends, and they find themselves doing, you know, more dirty work than they thought they were going to be asked to do. So if it's not spelled out in the contract, it's going to be, um, you, you know, it, it, it's going to be harder to, to fight back. So if, if there are specifics that you want or don't want, it's smart to get them written into the contract. And depending on how important it is, you know, some employers aren't going to be willing to do it because they, they want to maintain some protection for themselves, um, you know, but you know, depending on how important it is to you, that could be a, a scenario where you either continue pushing or you just have to walk away if it's, if it, if you feel that strongly about it and go find another employer that is willing to accommodate your requests. So. That's huge. Yeah. I was just going to say the big thing is, is always that at the end of the day, right? Air your concern, talk to your employer, talk to um, your hiring manager and, and try and get what you want. Again, within reason, be malleable and, and, and compromise in a lot of situations. But um, you know, if there's something that you feel strongly for that you know is a, a specific duty or, or specific shift or you know somehow that you're trying to shape your life that is, is you know number one in the list of this is how I want to operate my future practice. Definitely air those out and, and get it out into the universe. Otherwise, you know you're going to get thrown into something that you're probably not happy with. Yeah. One thing that I like to tell clients a lot, too, is just make sure that you get some clarity, like especially with the larger contract documents for its 30, 35, 40 pages. Like you have to make sure that you understand everything in there. And if you don't like mm-hmm. ask and make sure that you get to the point where you do understand it before you sign it, because if there's yeah. any ambiguity or questions, then it, it might not be something that's going to be on your side. 
yeah, definitely why I don't like the those larger contracts. There's a, a lot of room to to hide more information at you know hide the specific quality. legal terms and yeah. Yeah, uh, if your eyes get foggy after a few pages, I'm I'm not too far behind. Yeah. <laughs> Any other words of wisdom, Braden, or things you think people should be aware of when looking at their contracts? Have a uh, someone familiar with healthcare law review them. It's uh, the next big step for you guys coming out in a out of practice and in a or out of training in a practice and um, you know you, you work this hard for so long you know, don't slip up now you know, let that first big step be the right one and uh, let's make you some money and be happy. Absolutely, I know you've done a great job reviewing contracts for a number of my clients and, and are always very thorough and they're very appreciative of that. Um, if anyone listening here or anyone knows someone looking for a job that's looking to get a, a contract reviewed, get in touch with us. Braden does a great job for, for our clients. Um, you can just email us info at thefinitygroup.com or find us online, pretty easy. Google our names, Google Affinity Group, you can find us. So. Well, thank you, Braden, for joining us, and uh, good luck to everyone listening with your contract negotiations. Yeah, happy job hunting. Have a good one, guys. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance, or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on the affinitygroup.com slash podcast, on our Affinity Group YouTube channel, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at theaffinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Affinity Group, LLC.